This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. I'm your host, Alan Pierce, and today we have another show regarding issues of a timely nature in the field of workers' compensation. Before we get started, we would like to thank our sponsors, Case Pacer Practice Management Software, dedicated to the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to casepacer.com. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, pinow.com. Need a private investigator you can trust? Well, visit PINow.com to learn more. On today's show, we have a guest I've wanted to have on Workers' Comp Matters for a long time. He's Peter Romanier. Peter is a 30-year veteran of the workers' compensation system. He has been an entrepreneur and consultant, but he is most widely known as a writer. He has written on many topics of national interest, and along the way, has interviewed over 1,000 individuals, ranging from injured workers to CEOs. He lives in Woodstock, Vermont. He has both his bachelor's and MBA from Harvard. And Peter, I'd like to welcome you to this edition of Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you very much, Alan. I'm very, very happy to be here. Thank you very much. The reason I I suggested this show that we're recording, by the way, we usually don't disclose the date we're recording our podcasts, but this is now the end of January of 2017. And I thought it would be particularly timely to talk about the impact, as best we can tell, of the 2016 primarily presidential election as well as the congressional and Senate elections on the administration of workers' compensation. And I know, Peter, this has obviously been a subject of discussion both outside and within the workers' compensation field, and I uh, would like to welcome your thoughts to what impact you feel, as best we can tell, a Trump presidency and a Uh, Republican-dominated House and Congress would have on primarily state-based workers' compensation programs. So perhaps you can start with something general, and then we can get into some specifics. Right. Well, that's um, one general point I think has to do with the focus that uh, the Department of Labor, in particular OSHA, has taken over the last three to four years to express concern about the performance of the workers' comp system. This is quite an extraordinary uh, undertaking by OSHA. It would be as if the Department of Energy would to say, we have grave doubts in the way in which oil distribution is managed in this country, and we think that the performers are underperforming. Uh, OSHA has, uh, in 2015 and most recently, issued two reports, which are really hard-hitting reports, or more substantive than the ProPublica reports. Now, OSHA people there really developed a sense that uh, the workers' comp system is not working, and they're very unhappy about it. That kind of concern, of course, starts at the top. And um, David Michaels, the head of OSHA, has already resigned. And with the top people leaving, I suspect that concern is evaporating very quickly. All right, and of course, OSHA deals if not exclusively, certainly primarily with occupational and worker safety. And I know there have been some expressions of concern 
about whether or not either by executive order of the president or by legislative changes, there could be less of a focus on worker safety and or inspections, fines, and efforts to keep employers in line with, if not minimal standards, appropriate standards. Outside of OSHA, there has also been through at least the Obama administration's Secretary of Labor, Perez, uh, some statements from the DOL on workers' comp more broadly than just the worker safety issue. Perhaps you might speak about how we were faring under a democratic administration in terms of federal uh, commentary on state workers' comp and where you see our new Secretary of Labor designate fitting in. Yeah, I have not been a careful student of the entire body of issues that DOL has presented with regard to workers' comp. But beyond the area of work, safety, and health, the Department of Labor has been involved in a lot of issues pertaining to employment, and some of these issues do impinge on workers' comp. Let me give you an example, the concept of misclassification. Misclassification is the term of art used to define when an employer labels a worker an independent contractor as opposed to an employee. All kinds of protections happen for employees. Many protections disappear for the independent contractor. And the workers' comp system only applies to employees. So therefore, if you have an industry such as, most notoriously, construction, where half the people on a work site are independent contractors or more than half, the contractor has no work comp obligations. Uh, there are a whole bunch of other obligations that the employer uh, avoids, for example, overtime. Now, uh, several states, I remember initially, uh, Massachusetts being one of them and a number of other states, have tried to cut down on this classification, often, often led by labor unions and construction labor unions, because they saw that employers who were abusing the independent contractor route were able, able to put in lower bids because they didn't have to pay workers' comp insurance. So DOL is very interested in putting together agreements uh, between the Department of Labor and state agencies. I think you're in about 35 states. Uh, I don't know where that is right now, and I'm not sure how much more needs to be done in terms of building more agreements and putting more muscle into the program of reducing misclassification, but I wouldn't be surprised if that came to a halt. In addition to misclassification, there are also other ways that um, employers, for example, can avoid paying high premiums, and it's also categorizing construction workers as clerical workers and things like that. And I do know the DOL, through um, Secretary Perez and in response to some congressional and Senate correspondence, had uh, spoken about the necessity of the federal government at least overseeing the state workers' comp system. And the, the question I think those of us that are invested in the system have is whether the impetus for continuing to do that will, will remain with a Republican administration and the present appointed secretary. So I think the discussion of the Department of Labor and misclassification is, is a pretty good segue into the next area that I'd like you to talk about, and that is the area of immigration and the ability of 
undocumented workers who, for the most part, under existing case law, are entitled to workers' compensation, especially in view of what was probably the strongest issue that led President Trump to the White House was his very rigid stance regarding undocumented or what he calls uh, illegal immigration. So how do you see that fitting in, his presidency, to the rights of undocumented workers who are here working and working hard and sometimes exploited to be able to qualify not only for workers' comp but also appropriate safety and health protections? Right. Let's put this into context. There are about 25 million workers in the United States right now, foreign-born. Of those, 8 million are unauthorized. The unauthorized workforce is concentrated in jobs which either require high school degrees or do not require high school degrees. There are hardly any unauthorized workers who have advanced degrees going beyond high school. There are occupations which are heavily populated by immigrants, such as agricultural workers, maids and housekeeping cleaners, 49% are immigrants as a whole. And of the workers who are immigrants who are engaged in uh, jobs that do not require formal education, upwards of a half are undocumented. Allow me for a minute just to describe how these folks got here. We have had a cross-border labor market with Mexico going back 100 years, more than 100 years. And depending on what the laws were at any particular time, there was a fair amount of traffic between the United States and mainly Mexico. And that traffic was overwhelmingly circular. In other words, out of 10 other people who came to the United States, probably nine went back or almost 10 went back. Over time, there was a slow growth of a permanent group of unauthorized workers. And then in 1986, when the new immigration law was passed, what that did was shut down the border. Now, that was a massive Grand Slam error because what happened by shutting down the border was that anyone who was undocumented, unauthorized in this country didn't want to go back. And those who still wanted to come in could find a way of getting in. There was a very high chance, even after the border was shut down, of getting through the border. It took maybe two or three times before you got through. And then with the 1986 legislation, it also legalized the status of about 3 million people. And most of these were men. Many of them married with their wives back in Mexico. And the wives said, well, what am I doing my husband? So they walked across the border illegally. And as a result, the annual number of new births in the United States of unauthorized parents grew from, in the 1980s, from about 50,000 to 300,000 in the 1990s. Those babies, right now, many of those babies right now are, uh, well, if they're born in the United States, they're citizens. If they came over with their mothers, they would be now dreamers. What you see has happened is that we have, through really a mismanagement of immigration policy, created a very large pool of unauthorized workers working in a labor force which naturally, in the way that the labor and jobs are located, really pays very little attention to the formal border between Mexico and the United States. And this is going to create all kinds of problems in trying to resolve this. Uh, because there are all kinds of employers in the United States who want to have these workers 
legal or illegal. And they're a lot more determined to maintain access to this workforce than there are other people who want to deprive them of the workforce. For example, the agricultural corporate growers in uh, California are one of the most highly skilled immigration experts in the country because they need that workforce. Now, the thing is, though, that being in the shadows, 8 million workers in high-risk jobs is a very dangerous situation to be. And, in fact, uh, Len Welch, who is the head of safety for the state uh, workers' comp insurer in California, says that the greatest single step in improving safety, work safety in this country, were to legalize these workers, which, of course, would mean that they now have rights, are less intimidated. They also are able to move out from where they are working now because they wouldn't have to hold up in a job they otherwise wouldn't want, which would cause, uh, among other things, uh, salaries to go up and the employers have to spend a lot more time dealing with work safety and health. I don't see how the Trump administration is going to deport these workers in large scale. The Bush administration tried that with major raids in the 2000s, and all that did was create enormous headlines, which made the sense look go bad. This is probably an appropriate time to take a short break, uh, which we will do, and we will come back with our guest, Peter Romanier to discuss further impact of uh, changes that we might see in the workers' comp setting. So we'll be right back. Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, CasePacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see CasePacer in action, contact us today at CasePacer.com. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back. This is Alan Pierce talking with Peter Romanier. Peter, we ended our first segment with a discussion of, of immigration and the impact of a Trump administration on injured workers or immigrants in general. Let's try to change focus a little bit. Of course, probably the equal issue that Trump rallied his supporters around was the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. I know those of us in the workers' comp community for the last three or four years have been trying to figure out the impact of the ACA on workers' comp. And now we are looking at the impact of repealing the ACA and not knowing what's going to replace it with workers' comp. I know this is something you've looked at. Uh, Give us your expert opinion as best you can. 
Well, it's um, probably less expert than man on the street because I am puzzled myself. One would ordinarily assume that if uh, workers are covered with a health plan, they have a option of using their health plan instead of workers' comp. And in fact, there is a very high non-claiming rate. I believe that about 50% of injuries that a bunch of reasonable people will reasonably consider should be claimed under workers' comp are actually not at all. The medical care can be picked up in the group health plan. So you think there would be, with ACA, that would reduce the amount of claims in workers' comp. On the other hand, ACA has very high deductibles that come in. And even for people who have been, of course, insured for a very long time, the presence of high deductibles and surgeons who may perceive that they're getting more highly paid compensated in workers' comp, you can see the reverse taking place, which is that more and more people are being driven into workers' comp for by their doctors, their orthopedic, many orthopedists, to perform expensive uh, treatment. All right, and I guess, uh, like everyone else, we're going to have to wait and see. We're going to have to wait and see whether the ACA is repealed and what replaces it and whether we are going to have an influx of uninsured individuals, once again, who may be looking toward the workers' comp system for medical care. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Okay. I'm certainly trying to figure it out myself. All right. When you, when you do, let us know. Yes. You know, the final topic I want to touch on, and, and uh, we don't have a whole lot of time, is Discussing the status of what's known as opt-out, especially for those of you who have listened to workers' comp matters in the past and or have been following the literature or the press uh, accounts over the last year or two, the so-called opt-out movement, which began in Oklahoma and was thought to start to move into other states, came to a screeching halt when the Oklahoma Supreme Court declared the ability of large employers to remove themselves from the mandatory workers' compensation market and create their own ostensibly employer benefit plans under an ERISA statute, the Oklahoma Supreme Court declared that unconstitutional, and it appeared that opt-out in its present or perceived iterations was all but dead. Now that we have what is probably a much more large employer-friendly administration, how do you see opt-out adapting to both the criticisms leveled against it by the Oklahoma Supreme Court and other commentators who closely scrutinize these opt-out systems and how we might be dealing with the concept of a diminution of employers within the mandatory workers' compensation coverage arena. The thing that interests me most at this point is what I consider to be a terrible strategic error on the part of the opt-out advocates. What they did is they came out of Texas, which is a terrible environment in which you can prove the efficacy of opt-out because there's no rules at all, and began writing legislation with Republican committees in the state legislatures to try, without any attempt, to try to draw a larger audience. Let me tell you what the larger audience is. Now, let's assume that we have, in 1955, a, a march on Washington by the major unions steel workers, you know, uh, auto workers, and so on. Who will be in that march? Well, they're going to be probably 90% of them are going to be men. And is workers' time important for them? Obviously. It obviously is. Now, look at the women's march the other day. Okay, How many of those women are really concerned about workers' time? How many, in contrast, are really interested in parental leave? A lot. 
And what the advocates fail to do is to figure out how to appeal to a broader audience of people who really don't care a lot about workers' comp but care about other leaves. And this is how I think there may be a backdoor uh, opt-out going through Washington, which I don't think anyone's paying attention to right now, but it could be in the next 10 years, which is a, a Republican-driven revision to ERISA, which creates a kind of a super ERISA. And that's one which says that there's a package of ERISA with a f- set of benefits for the four of them. One is parental leave. The other is sick leave. The other is an opt-out version of workers' comp. And that an employer who elects this super package of ERISA has to embrace all three of them, parental leave, sick leave, and workers' comp. And then there would have to be some kind of method by which state governments have to vote some way of authorizing their employers to be able to elect this super ERISA. I'm not a lawyer, and I'm certainly not a legal strategist, but I can see this happening. And think about women in the Women's March would want to see a package such as this. Interesting point where it would be tied into perhaps more socially progressive issues. And yeah, I mean, the question all of us have is how can the federal government effectively mandate each and every one of the 50 states to adopt an amendment or a change in their state law where the federal government doesn't have any jurisdiction. And I suppose one way would be the creation of, as you put it, a super ERISA, and then the threat of a withholding of federal funds to those states if they don't allow a change to allow that. Or it may not be a mandate. It may be simply an option which works for five or ten years. You see how many states show up. And then, in other words, they pass legislation which is then tested against the state courts. And Bobby Burke would certainly be the first person to test it in Oklahoma. Having been tested, that means the employers in that state would be able to voluntarily elect super ERISA. Now, downstream, it may be after five or 10 or 15 years, the uh, Washington will say, we want this mandatory. But it doesn't have to be mandatory at the beginning. In fact, it would be a strategic error on the part of the advocates to try to make it mandatory because it will be kicked out. As a matter of fact, if you look back 100 plus years ago when workers' comp was first adopted, very rarely in any jurisdictions was it initially proposed as being mandatory. It was elected uh, an election. That's an extremely good point, because today we think it's been mandatory from the very beginning, but you're right. It was voluntary at the beginning, and that was to get around the, uh, the constitutional challenge. Wasn't constitutional, it? exactly, exactly. Well, we're coming up at the end of time. You did mention Bobby Burke, and those of you who want to know more about opt-out, at least as it existed in 2015 and 2016, you can go back into the menu of shows on Workers' Comp Matters. We did a very informative show with Bob Burke of Oklahoma, who led the charge of having the Oklahoma Act declared unconstitutional. Peter, I want to thank you very much for being our guest today. I know we really only scratched the surface, and we probably will have to revisit this topic again as the year unfolds. For those folks who want to hear or learn more about you, give us your contact information. Oh, um, it's hard to spell my name. That's a problem. Oh, I love say- I love saying it, though. But I'll spell it out briefly. Okay. R-O-U-S-M-A-N-I-E-R-E. And my email address is P-F-R at Rumaneer or Rusmanieri.com. Thank you, Alan. 
All right. Well, again, thank you, Peter, for being a guest. And that's today's edition of Workers' Comp Matters. This is Alan Pierce, hoping you go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network. Your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.